0: Today is the feast of Carlo Acutis, who is, um, or was, a 15-year-old Italian kid, patron saint of the internet, dedicated his life to creating a webpage documenting Eucharistic miracles, and was diagnosed with leukemia and kind of offered it to, to God. So I talk to our youth and kids about him all the time, kind of, you know, there's pictures of him buried in his soccer jersey of his favorite team. and. He talked about how much he loved playing video games and eating Tella. I mean, a very relatable, you know, character, um, but the first millennial saint. Let us pray. Oh, almighty God, who has compassed us with so great a cloud of witnesses, grant that we, encouraged by the good example of thy servant, Carlo Acutis, may persevere in running the race that is set before us until at length. Through thy mercy we may with him attain to thine eternal joy. Through Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. So you just get me tonight, and so to avoid uh, just hearing my voice for an hour, I've put some Bibles on the table, um, and I'm actually going to call on some people to read some of the verses. So, um, if... Yeah, the people close, just hand them around. If you are terrified of talking in front of people, pass it to your neighbor and make them do it for you. Or, yeah, or if you've got one on your phone. And we're going to open to the the riveting book of Leviticus, which I actually find quite interesting. Chloe uh, has been reading through the Bible this year, and she joked that you know the the re- repetition of the king's stories was actually a little, little drier than Leviticus. Leviticus has some really interesting um, stuff. Some of it is shock value, as we'll see. But it but it really is interesting. There's a lot of depth there. But um, if you've never been here before, or if you're forgetful of our format, I'll go through scripture, tradition, and reason. Um, kind of three pillars of how Anglicans have. You know, viewed the world and interpreted events. So tonight we'll talk about leprosy. Um, we'll look at the gospel from this past Sunday in Luke 17. We'll, and then we'll look at the Levitical laws, um, Leviticus 12 through 15. Um, and I'll be a little more specific in a second. And then for tradition, we're going to look at some artwork, uh, depictions of leprosy, and we'll talk about um, how has the church kind of dealt with sickness or just leprosy and kind of the underlying spiritual condition and the metaphors that we use for leprosy? And then lastly, for reason, we're going to talk about uh, disability. Kind of looking at the message underlying, you know, the biblical passages about leprosy. What do they teach us about our modern day? And I think it actually matches onto disability um, quite well. So that'll be an interesting way to, to close it out. But before we actually look into Leviticus, um, take a moment to briefly explain purity laws. Um, the Old Testament laws have all sorts of laws governing all sorts of states of affairs. And, and the point was this, and if you read Leviticus and you think, you know, why does God care what clothes the Israelites wore or what fabrics were mixed if you had cotton and polyester or linen? Why, why does that matter? Um, we'll look at speci- especially with like the purity cleanliness laws. Um, and we'll talk about how they don't actually, there's no moral weight to those. Um, being unclean was not equal with being sinful, but it was a, a, a ritual uncleanness. And why does God care about that? The, the point, and I think it's helpful to always remember, is God is setting Israel apart so that they look and act different than the other nations. That's, that's it. So this makes them look different. So that they can actually be a witness to God's saving power. Um, in some cases that we see, like in the in the tales of war, they're supposed to look weaker. Um, God, you know, cuts their their armies in half or in eights, so that the other nations know for a fact we just got beat by some deity, because clearly it was not the 30 men who who beat an army of 3,000. Everything in all the laws governing them—it's always intentionally setting them apart. Um, that is what it means to be holy. It's—it's it's setting Israel apart, so that they look and act different. So, um, as we look at the purity laws, kind of keep that in mind. Uh, the the cleanliness no, The cleanliness laws—we're always concerned in kind of hearkening back to the created order. So, think Garden of Eden. God creates humanity and there's a, a wholeness, a completeness to it. And we actually see that progressing in the stages of creation. We see in, in one of the creation stories when we get Adam created first before Eve, there, it's incomplete. And it's not until God creates Eve that humanity is seen as whole, as complete. And so then they are able to fully enjoy God's promises in Eden. And then when they disobey, they are kicked out and they're kind of severed from that completeness that wholeness um, of enjoying God's covenants relationship with them and the rest of the Old Testament is kind of about them regaining that in some ways the epitome of how they regained that was the the temple system the sacrificial system making their way into the holy of holies once a year when the high priest would do it and that was kind of that restoration of that Edenic relationship with God and then they would subsequently lose it and that's kind of where we get all of these rituals. But it's about ritual worship. It is not about sin when we're talking about purity. Do they map onto each other a lot? Sure. But uncleanliness is... It's not cleanliness is next to godliness. That's, that's not what's happening in the Old Testament. Um, they're, they're kind of separate and they're intended to do different things. So we'll, we'll look at Leviticus tonight. Um, I'll read a couple verses. I'll have some other people read a couple verses. But we're going to start with chapter 12. And uh, if you open a Bible up to there, and yours has headings, you'll see that it says purification of women after childbirth, which is always a fun topic. And it's always a, a hotly debated topic because I think we misunderstand the point of this. And I think we do that when we conflate uncleanliness with sin. And so then it comes across as this um, interrogation of women, you know, subjugating them. They they have a kid, and now they're also sinful. Having a child is somehow sinful. Put that to the side and kind of get rid of it for now, and let's try to approach this with, with an idea about ritual worship and this severance of God's blessings that we all experience that doesn't always have to do with sin. So Leviticus 10 is kind of these laws about if a woman conceives and bears a male child, she shall be ceremonially unclean seven days. Um, And then it talks about, you know, her time of blood purification shall be 33 days. And then if she has a female, the days are different. So right off the bat, there should be a recognition that having a female and having a male are not less sinful or, or more virtuous than the other. So we know this is not about sin. This is not a moral failing to have a child. If you actually look at some of the biblical writings, I mean, this is the tangent, but there was a thought that um, a male formed in a different amount of days than a woman in the womb. So they were trying to mathematically, you know, map this onto it. But again, we know just intuitively having a, a, a girl versus a boy, there's no virtue difference in there. But why the difference in ceremonial, uncleanliness days, because it's not about sin or virtue or morality, it's trying to say something about a woman giving birth that somehow maps onto uncleanliness. And that might make us uncomfortable, but I think if we look a little deeper, we start to understand better the the worldview behind this. So um, we'll, we'll try not to get too graphic, but implicit in all of these passages is this idea of life fluids. I know that sounds a little, a little archaic or, or strange, life principles. And the loss of those fluids was somehow depleting your wholeness, your humanity. So when we look at Leviticus 12, which is not the point of our talk, but I think it sets the stage well, when, when it comes to childbirth, a pre-scientific nature of childbirth, what happens when you give birth? You lose blood and water. Blood and water are two life-giving fluids in your body. Um, They didn't know everything about science, but they knew you can't live if you just bleed out. They knew you couldn't live without water. So when they see a woman losing that, they see that it is somehow a loss of what it means to be fully human. Um, And you actually get the same stuff with men, but men by nature don't give birth to children. So they don't have these (laughs) traumatic events that makes them lose all of this fluid at once and, and kind of makes them vulnerable all at once. So that's why there's such a focus on childbirth. So water and blood emerge during childbirth, these life fluids. Um, Leviticus 17, just a few chapters later, says, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's why we get all these laws relating to blood. Um, and if you touch blood, you shall be unclean. And if you drink blood, you shall be you know permanently unclean. Kind of random stuff like that. Um, it's all about this idea that These fluids are part of what makes us alive and the loss of them makes us less fully alive. Childbirth then was seen as a sacrifice. The mother was giving up some of her life fluids to create life in this baby. And there was this time, seven days, 14 days, where it was almost seen as like a replenishment. You've lost the fluids, you're vulnerable, you need some time to replenish them. Practically, this is actually good news, and anytime people talk about Levitical law and childbirth, I always halfway joking but also seriously say the Old Testament guaranteed more maternity leave than the United States does right now <laughs> so you know let's let's be careful about you know who who we're critiquing um so quickly. but the woman who just gave birth is is vulnerable, um and this period of uncleanliness was where she was she was watched at her house. she was not supposed to go anywhere else, and that was it was a good thing for those women. Um, if you think back to our talk about demons, we said, spiritually speaking, um, there was a lot of demons that were said to attack vulnerable women after childbirth. Um, the woman after she gives birth and her baby were very vulnerable. A lot of that comes from like sudden infant death syndrome that they didn't quite understand, but they saw stillbirths and women dying in childbirth. It's a traumatic event. They saw all these deaths happening, and um, one good way for them to interpret it was Demons are attacking the vulnerable women. So this uncleanliness was, A, a protection for the women, but also a recognition that our bodies matter. And somehow losing the water and the blood changes us. Um, that, that life fluid within us um, was important. God is the life giver, and he gives us these, these fluids as a symbol of our life, and losing them, you know, sets us apart. And again, think Temple imagery. Um, creation is always a parallel for the build, rebuilding of the temple, and we are created to be fully united with God. And if we are lacking somehow in our humanity, it means that we are lacking in our ability to worship fully, because what are we created to do? We're created to worship. That is the, the epitome of our, our existence. So any slight or change or disability or limit on our existence is actually a limit on our ability to worship. So, um, ritual impurity means that we are not we are not whole, we are not um, complete somehow, and that doesn't actually matter for anything except for worship, kind of, is what they're getting at. Um, these Old Testament purity laws are constantly a reminder that how we worship matters and how we present ourselves in worship matters. So, <clears throat> let's move on to the actual laws about leprosy, which is chapter 13, and if you have a Bible, turn to it, and we'll read kind of a a few different verses, and we'll start with verses 1 and 2. Someone has a Bible, and would like to read the first two verses of chapter 13.
1: The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a leprous disease on the skin of his body, he shall be brought to Aaron the priest, or to one of his sons, the
0: priests. Okay. So if someone is sick, what do we do first? Where do we take them? Yeah, we take them to a doctor. Um, if, if you take them to me, you know, I might give you some counsel, but I'll also say, have you asked the doctor what's wrong with them? Because I don't have a medical degree. <laughs> They weren't stupid back then, they, they didn't think that their priests were somehow also medical experts. So we get this introduction to leprous disease, um, we'll kind of get into this. Uh, Hansen's disease, as we currently understand it, is not a perfect map for these Old Testament leprous diseases. Um, some of the symptoms that we see don't match perfectly on. We think of it as, you know, extremely contagious kind of in some parts of the Bible the way it's spread. And some of these verses doesn't actually match onto what we understand as Hansen's disease here. But you see in verse two, it says uh, a leprous disease. And then my Bible actually has a little I next to it. And at the bottom of the page, it says a term for several skin diseases, precise meaning uncertain. If you had something on your skin, they kind of called it this word, lepra or leprous disease. Um, It was a whole host of conditions. So again, this is very well likely to be leprosy as we understand it, but also other sorts of skin conditions, anything that was boiling on the skin. And as we see soon, if you lose the fluid, that is kind of the mark. That's uncleanliness, because again, this life fluid, you're losing parts of your body. But they take them to a priest, because again, this is about ritual impurity, worship. They're not actually, hopefully they are concerned with the cure of this, but primarily, they're concerned with how does this affect your ritual state in worship? How does this affect your ability to join in the promises of God as He has revealed them to the Israelites? How has He revealed them to him in the sacrificial system? That's, that's kind of the core of this. So, we're not, I'm not going to have you read the uh, priest examination of the skin on the body. That's where it gets a little, a little too graphic. Um, but we will skip to uh, 45. Through forty-six, and if somebody besides Becky would read that,
1: I'll read. It. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, "Unclean, unclean!" He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. How much further?
0: You can finish that verse.
1: He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp.
0: Okay. So if a person, after we've skipped the priest examination, and and Father Steve mentioned this in his sermon, it it really is um, hilariously intense of, you know, the, the rituals associated with killing the bird, blood on the thumb, the ear, send one bird away, blood on the goat, oil with the goat. You mix the blood in the water. Which should be a signal to us talking about life fluids here the blood and the water that we've lost or that you lose in leprosy that's part of the ritual cleansing of you you're regaining some of those life fluids but if you have it it says the person shall wear torn clothes let the hair of his head be disheveled which sounds peculiar to us intentionally mess up your hair and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out unclean unclean it's It's kind of a goofy image, Um, and most of us don't catch this at first. If you do, you're more of a biblical scholar than I ever hoped to be, but these are mourning rituals in a lot of the Old Testament. In a lot of the rabbinic literature, if you had a loved one who would die, these were some of the rituals prescribed for you for mourning. You would dishevel your hair to kind of demonstrate your outward disarray. You would walk down the street, and you would not cry out, unclean, unclean, but you would Cry out a whole host of other things, basically announcing your current state to people that I am I am in a period of mourning. You would tear your clothes. You sometimes you would shave your head. This says dishevel your hair, um, and you would kind of walk through the streets announcing your mourning period. So what is happening here? Why would they be engaged in a mourning ritual? Not They're
1: separate from their
0: community. Yeah, they are announcing their own spiritual death. Um, They are announcing to everyone that they encounter that I have lost this gift of life somehow. I have been exiled from the community and I'm mourning my own death. Now again, if you actually look at some of the Levitical laws, uh, leprosy was not always fatal. Um, Sometimes it was, but there are numerous examples of descriptions of the leprous disease where it does not end in death, and we know, Father Steve said, it has an incubation period of 20 years. Sometimes we see that it goes in and out. Um, some of the scholars uh, kind of speculate that, uh, I think it's pronounced vitiglio, where you get the splotches on your skin. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That that was actually um, one of the diseases that would be categorized as a leprous disease, which is not fatal, but it gives you white splotches. It makes your hair turn white. It makes them fall out. Marcia, do you have a question? I have
1: a question. Not just with leprosy, but other places in
0: the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I'm
1: How much of, I mean, I see your association with you know being able to worship and everything, but I've often wondered how much of their rules and you need to do this was based out of fear of something so unknown that they were scared to death. Uh,
0: Very likely, possible, Um, and it's and if you read these, it's kind of obvious that they don't actually know what this is. Um, their, their descriptions of it don't line up to any one disease. It's a whole host of things. Um, but what they did know is that they see loss of life fluid that's substantial, that makes you ritually unclean, and that kind of maps with other childbirth. Um, is it a sin? No. But what is it? It's a loss of life fluid. and So you have been rendered incomplete somehow um, until you kind of regain that, that strength. And someone with leprosy is kind of constantly in that state. But they are announcing their own spiritual death. They're announcing to other people that I've been severed from, not my actual life, because it's not fatal. They're announcing that they've been severed from the spiritual life, their ability to worship. That is true life. And so they are announcing a period of mourning because they are telling people, I've been cut off from God's promises. I live outside the camp. I shall live alone. other instances we have like where families get it, sometimes they dwell together in one house if they both have it. But it's an interesting kind of depiction of of mourning, not, not of the physical death, but of the spiritual death, because it always relates to worship.
1: One more question along those lines. Do we know like if a person's in this state of exile <clears throat> when they die, if they die? Mm-hmm.
0: Were they treated differently? Yes, they were. They would not have a, a burial in, inside the temple um, because they were, they died unclean. And again, uh, touching dead bodies was, was something that would make you unclean. Practically speaking, good advice. Don't Don't be handling dead bodies. But why? Because the bodies excrete the life fluid when they die. I mean, not to get too graphic, but when you come into contact with that, that is something that makes you ritually unclean because you are... Actively participating in someone else's uncleanliness. So the rest of, of chapter 13 is just, you know, concerning clothing. If a, if a garment touches it, that renders you ritually unclean. Um, cutting off from sacred space is kind of the, the gist of it. That is what makes leprosy so impactful. We read it and we have in mind, you know, this egregious limbs falling off. That is not always what Leviticus is talking about. It was serious, but not because it was always physically fatal. It was serious because it cut you off from the sacred space, from worship of the temple.
2: How how did they feed themselves? If they're cut off from society, Mm -hmm. how could they feed
0: themselves? They would beg. I mean, that's why you see in the New Testament, um, and we'll we'll see this in Luke 17, they would stand far off and kind of beg. And most of the time, they would be ignored. um, And they quite possibly died from lack of shelter or food or something, because no one wanted to come into contact with them. They were supposed to keep their distance. So chapter 14, we'll move to um, verse 1 through, um, go ahead, somebody read verse 1 through 4. This kind of just gets us introduced into what, what is the restoration, what is the treatment?
1: The Lord said to Moses, This shall be the law of the leper for the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought to the priest, and the priest shall go out of the camp, and the priest shall make an examination. Then, if the leprous disease is healed in the leper, the priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed two living clean birds and cedar wood and scarlet stuff and hyssop.
0: Okay, so this is where we, you know, we're not going to read the whole thing, but this is kind of that, you know, bird sacrifice, cedarwood, hyssop. It is a, it's a ritual not to, not to cure them. Because notice what it says, that they, the priest is making an examination to see if they're already healed. This is a ritual welcoming them back into the community. They're not concerned, the priest is not concerned. He knows it's out of his pay grade to deal with the actual medical cure. Not what he's concerned about. He's concerned about the healing the restoration, the welcoming back into the community of faith. Um, he shall sprinkle seven times upon the one who is cleansed of the leprous disease. He shall pronounce him clean, and then the living bird. And then eight days later, after this first ritual, we get a second ritual. Again, they've already been healthy for eight days. This is not a medical cure. They're, they're ritually welcoming them back into the community. Um, parallels to creation. There's seven days of recreation that you are kind of re-brought back to life. I mean, it really is a new birth. For a lot of the cleansing rituals, they would shave their head to kind of mimic being a newborn baby entering back into the world. They'd be sprinkled with blood and water, just like in childbirth, when you are welcomed into the world. It is a a recreation. We get laws saying, you know, if they're poor and can't afford um, that much, then they bring the guilt offering. This is... the the biblical basis for when the Virgin Mary brings her offerings to the temple after her childbirth. These are similar cleansing rituals. And again, this is, as a side note, why we can hold up that the Virgin Mary was sinless and brought this offering to the temple, because it's not a sin offering. Uncleanliness is not sin, it is a ritual state that you have been severed from the community and it is made right through rituals, through this worship. But it is not always equated with sin. Okay. Okay. Last thing about scripture, um, we'll just talk, talk for a minute. Why, why is a skin disease important? Why, why does uh, Jesus have so many stories about the leprous disease? Why is the Bible so concerned about these skin diseases? There are far worse medical diseases. But there's something unique, I think, about skin. Um, one, you can't help it, like most diseases. There's no sin involved in the skin disease. But think about your Skin, what is it? uh, What sense is it related to? Yeah, touch. It is how we experience and come into contact with the world. It is Literally a barrier. What makes me Luke is the skin. I mean, that's kind of how we You know Understand the barriers in our world when we come into contact with someone else when we've crossed the barrier It's when we've touched someone Um, That is what helps us navigate the world and a skin disease A disease that erodes the skin is eroding your identity. It is actually kind of chipping away at what makes you uniquely you in the world, which is part of why, you know, I think they saw it. Um, And this is a little speculation and a little bit of the early church writers, you know, kind of saying similar things. That's why the skin diseases always get so much prominence, because there's something about our skin that, makes us us, and chipping away of that is a spiritual death because it's a state of uncleanliness, but it's also a loss of our identity, of our unique nature. Um, it does not let us navigate the worlds in the same way. And when, in its extreme form, you know, if you lose limbs, you are literally losing parts of you. Um, they did not have a scientific notion that, oh, you are just your soul or your brain, this immaterial part of you. No, your, your body mattered. Um, and if we maintain a biblical worldview. Today, we still maintain our bodies matter. What makes us us is our body and our soul united together. So this this erosion of barriers, a loss of identity. Um, and a- another point to be made, a leprosy affects the skin by mixing healthy and death flesh together. Um, it was modeled. You would, you would kind of get descriptions that you'd have healthy skin right next to dead skin. And I think this is a good introduction um, for us to kind of move into the way the church has always seen leprosy in the bible Um, there are these scriptural undertones but a lot of the early church always tried to make parallels with with leprosy Um, it was more than a disease it was a metaphor for sin usually sometimes heresy Um, augustine kind of talks about leprosy as being this metaphor for heresy in our lives we have good doctrine and bad doctrine and sometimes they're all mixed together and it's not until we actually live into the life of the church that we recognize the impurities within us and the bad doctrine like the bad flesh is kind of scarred over and replaced with healthy flesh that's one way to go with it um but i think sin is a good a good way to do it and i know it's a little confusing because i've been saying this isn't about sin this isn't about sin and now i'm making a metaphor about sin Um, but i'm in good company this is kind of a long-standing comparison that the church has always made um and I think turning to Luke 17, as we kind of make this pivot to, transit, to, to tradition, um, really makes this point and drives it home. So, so this, can I ask, can I ask you yes, ask? absolutely. So, is that interpretation that impurity is not about sin, is that more recent, right? That is, is that sort of relatively contemporary biblical scholars sort of reading back and saying, we think we see this? I, I think... They are, but I think it's also in the Old Testament. Um, I think when, when, you, when you get the establishment of the different types of sacrifices, there was a moral or a sin or a guilt offering, and then there was also the, the purity offering. Um, and I think by separating those, the assumption is that ritual uncleanliness is important, but it is not a moral failure on the part. Because if you had a moral failure, there were specific offerings for that. Um, there are you know, very explicit. If you've done this sin, you bring this offering. If you've done this sin, you do this offering, or bring this animal. And this is how you go about making it right. And then uncleanliness is kind of a whole other ball game. Um, and they mix in a lot, but I, I think that's I think that it's fairly strong case within the Old Testament itself that those are are separated. Wendy. So along with that, I just had kind a of thought. Does that mean like probably the people back in the old? With those differences then, yeah they also get absolutely confused? which is why i think it's it's um misguided for us to like read the childbirth things and say oh the old testament is so sexist it's saying women are wrong in having having children that is that is us kind of putting our current lenses onto this text that is not how they were understanding it um they were understanding it kind of with a different world worldview different frameworks at play here um Any other question about the Old Testament before I continue with Luke 17? So at some point, are you going to speculate whether those distinctions should continue to be useful for us today? I will. I'm going to talk about how Jesus kind of tweaks them a little bit. So the story about uh, Luke 17, this is what we read at the Gospel last time, and uh, I'll just read it all the way through. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee, and he entered a village... As he entered a village, ten lepers approached him. Keeping their distance, they called out, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were made clean. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. He prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus asked, "Were not 10 made clean? But the other 9, where are they?" Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. Then he said to him, "Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well." So let's just take it bit by bit. The opening the opening passage, we have 10 lepers standing afar off. That's intentional language. They are ritually unclean. They are not supposed to be near anybody. Um and actually, this is probably a good time. Uh, it's in black and white, but this is a depiction. You can take one and pass it. Um, I printed out 30. I'm not going to count. Who's here, but if, if you're a couple, maybe, maybe share. Um, I didn't want to print out 30 color, so it might be a little difficult to see. But this is a depiction of someone with leprosy announcing their presence in a village. And you'll see that the people have scattered um, one of them has even left a baby on the ground in their haste to get away from this leprous person. So you kind of get the the, un, the cultural understandings of leprosy. These, these were people begging from a distance, shouting, begging for an ounce of attention. Um, some of this was probably misunderstandings about contagion, possibly. But a lot of it was, you know, this idea about being ritually unclean. Um, I'm clean, and I want to make sure I have access to the temple. They are not. I don't want to lose that, so stay away from me. Um, so you see kind of in its extreme form. They're, they're walking with a bell. Um, some other early depictions say a wooden mallet. They would walk down the street to make sure everyone knows, hey, leper, coming through, um, keep your distance, and people would, would scatter. So this is the context Jesus, you know, invites us into today, that these... These lepers are standing far off, basically assuming, hey, let's shout to this, this teacher walking by, um, maybe he'll have compassion, probably not. They're not making any assumptions, they're not taking a step toward Jesus, they're keeping their distance. And what do they say? They say, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They're begging for mercy. And notice what Jesus does. What does he tell them to do first? Be priest. Mm-hmm. So a lot of other leprous stories in the Gospels, we do get several where Jesus simply touches them and says, you know, be cleansed. Um, That's a a statement of their health and also their spiritual condition. Be cleansed, welcoming them back into a state of ritual um, purity. But this time he says, go and show yourselves to the priests. This is a unique healing story that Jesus does this. Um, Thinking about why, I think, Um, And I think this this fits very well into this story and helps us resolve some of those things Gary was talking about. I think what Jesus is doing is upholding this state of ritual worship while also redeeming it and transforming it. So I think he's trying to make a point about these purity laws. Um, Jesus maintains the structure of ritual worship and the importance of the distinction between clean and unclean. He's not telling them, no, you're fine. You're actually clean. Don't worry about what they tell you. No, he's actually saying, "Yeah, go and show yourselves to the priest because they know what do you do when you have leprosy? You go to the priest once you're cleansed." So he's kind of saying, "Go ahead, go to the priest and trust that you'll be okay." Um, and on their way, we see that they realize they are they are cleansed. And so they go to the priest. They no doubtedly do all of these cleansing rituals. And who is the one who comes back to Jesus? Yeah, the foreigner, um, the non-Israelite. So the one who these rituals don't even apply to him is the only one who comes back and kind of understands the proper response to this is gratitude. I think here's what's happening. I think these lepers encounter the priest, the, the true high priest, Jesus Christ, and they actually find their ritual healing with him. And as he sends them to the other priests on their way, they come to this realization that We've already encountered the priest. We've already been made ritually clean. Jesus is not negating those rituals, but he's actually showing how they are fulfilled in him. And the one who comes back to him, what does he get that the others don't? What does Jesus tell that, that foreigner? Yeah, that he actually adds something to this. He's not just cured of his disease. He's not just made ritually clean, but Jesus actually says your faith has made you well. There's this kind of addition of, of holistic healing. Um, Father Steve mentioned the difference between cure and, and healing in his sermon. I think that's what's happening here. I don't think Jesus is doing away with the Old Testament. I think he's actually redeeming it. He's saying the priesthood, the ritual, all of that is fulfilled in me. You've already encountered the high priest. And I am the high priest who declares you clean. I'm also the sacrifice that makes you clean in the first place. Um, the ritual sacrifice of the sprinkling of the blood in the water. I think he is, he is prefiguring this. I mean, he hasn't died on the cross yet, but I think that's what's happening. He's upholding this, this system while also picking away at it. He is saying, no more, you know, is there a state of uncleanliness that stays with you because I am here to, to cleanse you. He's going through the rituals. Jesus is still doing the sacrifice. He's not saying that's not worth it. But he's saying, the sacrifice I'm offering is enough to cover everyone's uncleanness and everyone's sin. And then when, we, when the foreigner comes back to thank him, he actually says, your faith has made you well. Marcia, do you have a question?
1: Yeah, well, I just, it makes you, when you read that, you also think, you know, made me think that was Jesus, you know, because they were the clans.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Was he sending them back to the priest to say, you know... I am God.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what a lot of the commentaries um, the early church writers say is Jesus is also kind of showing Israel. I mean, notice it's the nine people who don't come back are all Israelites that Jesus is kind of letting them know I am fulfilling all of this. Um, go and show the priest. By the time you get there, you're already cleansed. And of course they'll ask, you know, who did this? Um, and the foreigner comes back and thanks him. But I think this this moves us into our tradition segment where I just want to make a brief comment on baptism and the Eucharist because I think this is mapping on nicely to this gospel story. Um, looking at that, that picture, you kind of see the, the cultural context of lepers, um, the fear that people approach them with, the state of uncleanliness and how it relates to being welcomed into the temple. Um, they were told to carry a wooden clapper or sometimes a bell they were forbidden to enter inns, churches, mills, or bakehouses. They were forbidden to touch healthy persons or to eat with them. They were, for all intents and purposes, outcasts in society. Um, Gregory of Nazianzen, who was a, a church father, um, he said that even after all of these gospel stories, I mean, he is writing after the time of Jesus, he says lepers would still be ignored um, in their society. Um, There was misunderstanding about them. There was, you know, still holding on to those old traditions of, you know, the unclean. Um, And he says that even after the the writings of Jesus, even after these stories kind of spread and what Jesus has done, that people were still holding on to that idea um, of keeping the outcasts out and, and, you know, not welcoming them back in. Gregory of Nyssa has this wonderful quote about lepers. He says, Are we not willing to shelter pigs and dogs under our own roof? The hunters are often not separated even at night from their own dogs. Look at the love that the peasant has for his calf. Even better, the traveler washes his donkey's hooves with his own hands, carries out his dung, and cleans the stable. And will we disparage our own kin and race as better than the animals? Let these things not be. Know, my brethren, resolve that this inhumanity will not triumph. So Gregory of Nyssa is critiquing the people around him who look at the people with leprosy and saying, "You sleep with your donkey, you carry out his dung, and you clean his stable, and you're you're not even treating a person, not even inviting them into your house." So we see, you know, kind of this understanding that um, the leprous person is no longer to be ignored. Um, Gregory of Nyssa is critiquing people for doing that. He's he's saying something has changed here. Making physical contact with the leper is something that Jesus does time and time again. And I think that is one way he challenges that, that system of ritual purity um, and tweaks it. And uh, broadly speaking, I think we can say that that is what the incarnation is. If we are paralleling leprosy with sin, like I said earlier, if we, if we are willing to make that connection, then that is the incarnation. That is Jesus Christ becoming human, uniting himself with sin, uniting himself with the leper and touching him, making physical contact. I mean, it matters that Jesus had a body because he was engaging in all of these ritual practices too. Each time he touched the leper, he was saying, now I am ritually unclean. And what does he also do at the same time? He says, I've, I've come to fulfill all of these laws, um, that there's a deeper meaning underneath all of them. Uh, with the youth, I've been going through Hebrews and we've been talking about how Jesus takes the temple imagery of the Holy of Holies. Who is who is able to access the Holy of Holies? And what does the author of Hebrews say time and time again? That Jesus is our high priest who has eroded the barriers. So he says, you know, the, the old priests would have to make a sacrifice for their own sins, and they would be able to enter the first boundary. And then they would offer the incense and prepare themselves and wash themselves, and then they would enter the second barrier. And then one day of year, they would be able to enter the Holy of Holies and make the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And the author of Hebrews says, Jesus Christ has undone all of those barriers. And that's where, that's where he says, therefore, let us approach the throne of grace, or the mercy seat that was in the Holy of Holies with confidence and boldness, because Jesus has invited us in. So we make this comparison between leprosy and sin. We, we see why there's such a biblical focus on it, because Jesus is using these things like leprosy to make a broader point about our invitation into full communion with Him. We experience both of them with the sacraments. Here's how I think it works. If baptism is our initial cleansing, making us like the ten lepers that are cured, I think the Eucharist is our thanksgiving. I mean, literally it's in the Word, making us like the one who returned to give thanks and is then made whole. We are invited into the church in baptism. We are cleansed of our original sin. We are made ritually clean, now able to approach the altar, and it's in contact with the Eucharist that we become that one leper who comes back and, and gives thanks. we got 15 minutes left. I'll probably only go 10, but uh, for the reasons section, I want to make a couple comments on disability, um, especially in our in our modern context, and kind of build off some of these foundations we've built. Um, One of the uh, most interesting papers I've I've had to write was about uh, disability in the sacraments, um, kind of looking at people with disabilities and their position in society as outcasts, um, largely out of their control and their full participation in the religion of Christianity. Um, I think we can look at leprosy as a disability. It is, it is not something that they chose. Um, it is not something that they willingly took on themselves. It is something they weren't born with necessarily, but that was thrust upon them. It renders them an outcast, and it bars them from normal human interaction. Maybe not to the extreme state that leprosy did in this context, but people with disabilities kind of experience similar things. What they, what they want is not just a cure, but, but restoration, full participation. Somebody who is blind would, I'm sure, love to be able to see. But more than anything, they actually want to feel like they are fully participating in the world around them. And it's when the barriers come up that reminds them, Oh yeah, I can't fully participate because my, my eyes don't work. Or I can't fully participate because I can't hear. There's a lot of parallels here with leprosy. Um, your body not functioning the proper way that it is supposed to. But what do we do with that, Um, especially when there is no physical cure in sight? I think the sacraments are the ways in which people with disabilities can be seen as transformed, as restored, invited into the full community, Um, similar to the lepers healed by Jesus. So we're not talking about curing disability, but making them holy, granting them access into the holy of holies. Why does this matter? Because I think when we think about what does it mean to be a Christian, we sometimes think about our own personal life before we think about humanity as a whole. Here's, here's the, the test case for it. I grew up um, Southern Baptist, and a lot of being a Christian was listening to sermons and, and intellectually assenting to doctrine. That is, that is great. That is not bad. Um, learning doctrine, being able to discern right from wrong. I mean, that's what the writer of Hebrews says is the mark of spiritual maturity. And it's not what I'm I'm not saying that that is to be ignored. But what does that mean for someone with severe intellectual disabilities who can never assent to doctrine? Or maybe you say, you know, full participation in in the Christian life is, uh, you know, going to youth group. Um, What does that mean for someone who is bedridden and can't actually physically make their way to... church building. I think if we reframe full participation, um, what does it mean to be invited into the community of faith as in the sacraments? I think it's actually the most inclusive thing we can do. Um, I think it's more inclusive than just saying free-for-all, it doesn't really matter what you do, because that is not actual restoration. Um, The lepers didn't want to be told, you're fine the way you are. No, they want to have this mark that they have been fully restored. They want to be able to approach the Holy of Holies and to go through that ritual cleansing period that gives them the confidence that they are a full human again. I think the sacraments do that. Baptism is no fault of our own. That is a work done by God. It does not matter if you're a baby, if you are a person with disabilities, with intellectual disabilities, if you are someone with um, dementia, severe dementia later in life. It's all the same. It all works the same. It's accomplished fully by God. Same with communion. Do we have to intellectually understand how Jesus is present? No. We're called to believe it, but we're not called to understand it. Um, and if that's a prerequisite for, for taking communion, there should be nobody there on Sunday. We should all be up there with our arms crossed for blessings. Yeah. So I think, I think the sacraments actually be, become a means of which we see disability Leprosy sin whatever we want to kind of use that parallel that is the way we are fully restored with God That is how we are invited back into the Holy of Holies. That is our our ritual cleansing Um, The Old Testament purity laws are fulfilled in baptism in the Eucharist. They are fulfilled when Jesus you know tells the lepers go to the priests and they become aware that they just encountered the high priest who has done all of the work already any questions about any of that?
2: Can I tell a story? Yes. Um, I have a, well, my brother's passed, but I have a Down syndrome brother. And he, um, uh, in where they lived outside of Washington, D.C., and there's a group of ladies in the Baptist church that decided that Down syndrome handicapped kids. have a Sunday school and so they managed to get rides for them my my mom and dad are paying it so they didn't go to the Baptist church but my dad would take my brother Mm. up every Sunday and go to Sunday school and they would have the pictures of the um, different Bible stories and they would sing songs and all that kind of stuff and my brother loved it and then Um, one of the Sunday school teachers started taking my brother to church Mm -hmm. um, afterwards. And so my brother was there from like 9 to 12, and my dad took him up, would pick him up and bring him home. When my dad had knee surgery and couldn't drive, someone from the church would pick him up, take him to church, and then take him home. And it was amazing. And the Sunday school class was... It started pretty small when my brother was little, um, but I think within like no time there was at least 20 kids. Cool. Yeah. Of all different ages, all different oh. abilities and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they'd have a Sunday school, uh, they'd have a Christmas party and sing all the Christmas hymns. Yeah. And um, my brother really liked music, and so they let him stand up and conduct. <laughs> and, which is really That's quite great. funny. Um, yeah. he had a great time. And that yeah. really meant a lot to him. Mm-hmm. And they even gave him a little Bible. It was like just so mm-hmm. big. Uh, old King James, of course, but had all the pictures in it. Yeah, And, um, and so that was really neat for him.
0: Yeah. And, um,
2: and how they how it was just really important. It became really important to the whole
1: church.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: that cla- And then when the lady that started the Sunday school um, died, they kept it going. There's other people that came up and Mm -hmm. continued
0: ministry. Here's why I think that's always so important to kind of think about people with Down syndrome, people with disabilities. I think that's always a good check for us, that when we get into our our trains of thought and when we think it means to be a Christian, think about the people with disabilities. Think about the bedridden, the, the people at home. If they somehow are not fully christian based on our standards i think we've done something wrong and i think that's the the wonder in the gospel today is that jesus is is saying the barriers have been removed and the only entrance is through me and it's open to everyone Um, that is that is the good news that all of those those laws um, all of those rituals are not neglected but are fulfilled in jesus christ yeah that's wonderful
2: I will say this, that the Episcopal Church has come a long way from hiding the children in the basement. When I grew up, you never, you missed church. Yep. You went into a parish house or a yeah. cellar, or, mm-hmm. you were yeah. not included.
0: And that, I think... You know, not to be too blunt, but there's a lot of similarities between young children and, and people with disabilities. I mean, the, the you know, lack of social skill, I mean, whatever it is, um, physical, you know, they have not fully grown yet. Um, if children, if we are not viewing children as, as just as important and just as worthy of approaching the altar as we are, we've, we've done something wrong. And I think that is a, one of the reasons that we started making changes post COVID here that um, we have a nursery. I get it, it's hard. You know, I don't have any kids yet, but if I've got a baby screaming. It's like, uh-huh, okay, come on. Yeah, that's right. But, I mean, we do love to hear it, but I also know it's hard for parents. But those kids belong in church just as, just as much as all of us do. Because they, they don't have to assent to any type of specific doctrine. Doctrine matters, but you don't have to understand it fully to be a full member. What is the mark of initiation? It's baptism. It's something God does. Marsha
1: just going to say
0: Jesus said you enter into the heart of the child yeah yeah let the little children come to me (laughs) and I think um, the last point I'll make we view it through the sacraments in full participation but that that helps us interpret the world better when you see things like you know countries saying that they've eliminated down syndrome as an example Mm -hmm. if you look under the surface what does that mean it means they've been euthanizing Down Syndrome people, Um, you know, chambers built to euthanize those who have been deemed less human. Um, that That is happening all around us. And we get to that point when we start making distinctions about who is more human and less human based on what we think Christianity is all about. If Jesus Christ has opened the door to the Holy of Holies to all of us and invited us into the sacraments of baptism for all people, because it is Him who does the work, And how can we stand by and say that person cannot be fully Christian? I mean, that's an extreme example, but that's why these patterns of thought matter. Um, And I think that's why it's always worth investigating. How are we applying, you know, these biblical passages? The passage of a leper has actually a lot to say about our our modern world today. Let's close in prayer. Almighty God, thank you for the gift of your Son, our High Priest, who declares us clean, invites us into the mercy seat, and invites us with boldness to draw near to Him, aware of our sin and impurities, but confident in the grace that lies in His sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for the community we experience here tonight. pray that you will be with all of us as we depart from here and that we will carry your love with us wherever we go. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.